All right, good morning. I am the less handsome version of Pastor Jordan, so um, actually, uh, normally he's a man that requires no introduction, but uh, when he comes up here and speaks in a moment, he's not actually going to sound like he normally sounds. Um, he's going to sound like either, either a, a, a lead singer of a heavy metal band, or he smoked an entire box of Cuban cigars in about an hour. Um, in reality, at about 10.30 last night when he was preparing for the sermon, his voice just went out, um, and it is not fully returned to him yet. And so we've kind of shared up the, the load of, of who's going to be saying what this morning, and so I wanted to provide you a little bit of context as to why his voice sounds a little bit off, and then I also have the privilege of uh, reading the text for this morning. And so if you would navigate either in your pew Bibles to page uh, 1166 or in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, be happy to read the text with you. And while you're doing that, I want to uh, completely apologize for my pants this morning. Um, had no idea I was going to be coming up here. Um, Bridget did say that we need to kind of dress playfully for the VBS, and so I'm going to pretend that's what I'm doing. But in reality, I actually love these pants. I <laughs> thought it would be a good opportunity to wear them. So uh, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 16 through 23, if you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read the Word of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews or tendons, grow as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. You are deeply and intimately involved in each one of our lives, drawing us ever closer to you and your love. Let your Holy Spirit descend upon this church right now. We pray for your grace on our service this morning. We pray for Jordan's voice, strengthen his vocal cords, allow him to be a vessel through which you deliver your message to us today. And I pray for the hearts of all that are here today. May they receive your word as truth and love. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. He, uh, may not, <clears throat> he may not be as handsome, but he's far funnier than I am. Well, as you can hear it, we have uh, the cruel humor of our loving God. I wanted to feel like I was younger. Now I sound like a prepubescent 11-year-old boy. It's not what I was asking for, Jesus, but thank you. You know, but I have to admit, it, uh, it brings me a lot of joy this morning to be able to share with you. It brings me a lot of joy to be able to deal with something uh, so close to my heart that convicts me as much as it does. So I figure since the topic is very heavy, I might start out with a little candid humor. Uh, I went through a website recently that gave me a sort of running list of California laws that were put into, put into practice. These are laws which may have been put into motion years and years and years ago, but for whatever reason, they are still current today. See if you can get a kick out of this with me. It is still currently unlawful to throw a Frisbee at any state beach in Los Angeles County, California, without a lifeguard's written consent day of. 
Could you imagine how many people would die while they were getting those written out? Animals are banned from mating publicly within 1,500 feet of a tavern, a school, or a place of worship. I'm glad that universally both the bar and the church have a general sense of morality when it comes to animal mating. It is still a misdemeanor to shoot any kind of wild game from a moving vehicle. Which seems bizarre, except you're allowed to do it if the target is a whale. So drive-by shootings in California are legal, pending you are killing Shamu in San Diego. That's just weird to me. I don't even, I don't even know what to say. You are, this, this will give me a kick. You are per, not permitted to wear cowboy boots unless you already own at least two cows. Ed Litwin needs a lawyer. It is illegal to spit anywhere at any time except on a baseball diamond. We're in trouble. A man cannot go outside while wearing a jacket and pants that do not match. I actually thought that was just at my home. Thank you, Jennifer, for making sure I look okay today. Uh, This one goes out to all the Mochismo men with facial hair, blessed to be that. Men who wear mustaches are forbidden from kissing women unless they give verbal consent. Most of you wives are like, yes. Keep that. That is privy to San Francisco, which I think is kind of funny if you look at the hipsters out there. Twist them up, boys. Okay. It is illegal for a trumpet player to play his instrument with the intention of luring someone into a business or store. It is unlawful. To hunt moths under a street light. <laughs> this one also privy to California or to San Francisco. Persons classified as ugly may not walk down the street at any time during daylight. <laughs> That's rough, isn't it? You'd never see me. It is illegal to, buy, to pile horse manure more than six feet high on any street corner. Everybody should know that. Anything over six feet with manure is just crazy. And last but not least, detonating a nuclear device within any city limits results in a $500 fine. Yes. Yes, that is California for you. So here's a question. Aside from the humor of it all, how did we come up with these? Think about that for a second. Who wrote that into law? Who sat down and said, This has to be enforced. One might say it's the result of just pure stupidity. People doing dumb things, abusing their freedoms to the furthest extent. Someone might say that has to do with the ever-growing, strong, overbearing government policy. Either way, whoever put it into motion doesn't matter. What we need to know and wrap our heads around this morning is that the reason that laws like this are enforced is due to fear. It's due to fear. A fear implicating that too much freedom spells disaster. Think about that for a second. See, it doesn't take a genius to recognize that we're not perfect people. If you've ever raised kids, you know. You don't know what's best all the time. You make choices that end up falling apart at the seams. We realize that we are incapable of making the right decision perfectly for all people all the time. Even if we did know... What was right, we certainly don't know what's right for everyone. Second to that, we have this issue with unbelief. And ultimately, fear springs out of unbelief. We're afraid because we don't believe that most of the time, if at all, that people are going to have the same interests that we do. Everyone's not going to think the same about everything. So I can't trust that Joe across the street is going to feel the same way that I do about each individual thing. So even if they were capable of knowing what was right and wrong all the time, there's no way when left to their own discretion that they're going to do what's right. So there's only one way to fix that problem. We make laws. We impose our personal ethics, our moral convictions our behavior, and then we guard them as best as we can within our own jurisdiction. As long as we have power and control, everything will be okay. As long as we can enforce someone to fit under what we feel most comfortable with or what we deem to be most right or safe, everything will be fine. We have to do this 
Because this gives us control. And when we have control, we have assurance. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with with the Colossians. The Colossians are a young, fledgling church. He did not have any personal uh, responsibility to them in that it wasn't through him that they heard about Jesus. It was through another disciple of Paul's. So Paul's in prison. This is referred to as one of the prison letters. Paul's in prison getting word from uh, other servants that run along and run the race with him, telling him that, hey, the Colossians, they're doing great. They're doing great. The gospel was preached to them. It changed their world. Their lives in the midst of this strange and awkward Greek culture are beginning to be transformed into that of Jesus. It's awesome. And Paul's like, oh, that's great. What else? They say, well, they also do have some problems. There's been people who have traveled and come and risen up among them who are teaching them things that are not in step with Jesus, teaching them things that are not consistent with the gospel of freedom. And so as a result, they're being tossed to and fro when it comes to belief. Is this pleasing to the Lord? Is that not? Do I do this? Do I not do this? Do I not eat this? Do I not drink that? Do I worship only on this day and at that place? And if I don't, does that mean that God and I are no longer good? And this happens for us. To the most aged Christian in this room, you'd be a liar to say you do not struggle with this. We constantly wonder if the fruit of our labor is positive or negative when it comes to our relationship with God. And so he says they've been teaching them that they need to abstain from a rigorous listing of things. Teaches them that they need to commit to a certain type of formative practice in and out, day in, day out. Constantly being able to prove that they are Christians. That their actions drive home the notion that Jesus is Lord, constantly proving it. And they're losing joy, Paul. They're falling apart. So what do we do? Today we would refer this to this as the effects of legalism. That's a word that gets thrown around quite often. You and I have heard it. Either thrown at us whenever we've said, wait, 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 this is what the scriptures say, guys. Legalism. So I think for the sake of it being such a loosely defined term, it would be important for us to define it as best as possible this morning before I go any further. I'm going to argue that legalism is found to be defined two ways. You're never going to find this word in the scriptures anywhere, so don't waste your time looking through Genesis to Revelation to find it. It's not there. But even though it's not there, the Bible talks about it explicitly. It ref- we'll refer to, to legalism in two ways. One, personally. Legalism is the point at which you are concerned to the degree that Jesus is no longer in favor of you. So the only way to bring that home is to commit yourself to some type of moral practice with just a degree of rigidity to the point where you are earning or re-attaining the love and favor of Jesus Christ. Second, it has to do with the church. The church uses legalism to impose upon its members in good standing a certain type of practice. Now there is both good and bad to this. There is a responsibility of the church and its leadership to impose upon those that desire to be members biblical right practices that are known to be pleasing to Jesus. That is absolute. Note this morning that I'm not saying that we're doing away with that at all. Rather, that which lies outside of the scriptures, things that we would be uncomfortable with seeing in church, things that we would be weirded out by our members participating in outside of here. It is the point in which we create an exclusive environment wherein the only way you can fit in or live here is if you align to these specific things. This would be legalism. Simply put, moral behavior that is without faith in the risen and finished work of Jesus Christ is legalism. Stamp that in your heart this morning. As we continue to evaluate God's word this morning, let this rest heavily on you. Any moral activity, any rigid obedience, any discipline that is not rooted in and falling down at the floor in front of Jesus risen, sitting at the right hand of God saying, it is finished. 
It's legalism. It is evil, and it is that which kills. So unlike Galatians and 1 Corinthians, which are commonly known letters of Paul, the nature of exactly what this weird teaching is is not totally known. The, the brother that comes to Paul in prison and says, this is what's up, does not say this is exactly what they're teaching, but he gives good impression. And so Paul, for the first, first and second chapters, all he does, and I love this, this is the best way to combat legalism, all he does is say over and over, the fullness of our freedom and our joy and our purpose and our life is found in Jesus Christ. He spends the first two chapters reminding believers You're only here because of Jesus. You're only alive because of Jesus. You're only righteous because of Jesus. And he is faithful to finish this job to the end. It brings us to the grandeur of the problem. The root of legalism is unbelief. The root of legalism is unbelief in the gospel of Jesus. Watch me spill this everywhere. Unbelief in the gospel of Jesus. Now, there might be some of you in the room that are like, hmm, that's a, that's a stretch. I don't know about that. Because, you know, we, we come up with these things because we want to do the right thing. And that's true. Legalism is often coming from a place of good intention. But there is an issue that Paul's going to get to the bottom of this morning. Where he says it's not about what you think is best. It's about what you don't think is best. So let's get into the word this morning. Within this short text, I'm going to give you three warnings that Paul gives the church. Three warnings, three specific things that are going to save us from a rigid, restricted, unbelieving life. If you are at all interested this morning in living a life that is unrigid, unrestricted, and ultimately believing in Jesus Christ and his power to save, please pay close attention. The first two warnings come to us and come to the church at Coloss as those which are imposed upon you. The first two things that come as warnings are warning you to recognize that legalism is something that is first forced and imposed upon you. So he starts off in verse 16. Follow along if you will. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So this text starts off with a therefore, which anytime you hear therefore or but or and or in connection with, that means that something came before it, which explains the whole basis by which he's about to say these things. Verse 13 through 15, prior to our text this morning, says this, to paraphrase, that Jesus Christ who died on the cross is powerful to forgive us personally from all of our sin. He is also the Christ who disarms all of the powers of the enemy through the cross, and he triumphs over death by rising again. The very crux of the gospel is the means by which legalism should have no place in the church or in our personal lives. So he says, therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, do not allow anyone, anyone, to judge you, According to these things. Now we know what judgment means. Okay. We don't need to beat around the bush. It is almost never. Maybe a few. But almost never in scripture. Referred in a nice way. Judgment's not nice. Your teenage daughter does not come home from school saying. Mom guess what. My friends totally judged me today. Is that not great. That never happens. Judgment's never good. Judgment's never exciting. Judgment is always the imposition of something which we cannot live up to. We're not fulfilling. It's the reason by which we change so many things about us. Judgment is awful. It's personal and it tears us to pieces inside and out. He's saying, look, don't allow anybody to change you, to change your heart, to change your desires to change the way you thought about the gospel. Don't allow them to change your passion for Jesus. Don't allow them to change the way you see things in light of this new revelation of God in your life. Don't allow them to do it based on such frivolous things. He talks about a new moon, 
what you eat or drink, and other religious festivals, including the Sabbath. And I love what he says about these things. These are a shadow of the things to come. These were specific disciplines within the context of the Old Testament law, wherein young Jews and old Jews were called to give a disciplined, rigid lifestyle in order to meet the demands and expectations of holy life. If you wanted to be righteous, if you wanted God to find favor in your life, if you wanted to be pleased with your conduct, do these things, show up on this day, don't work here, don't eat that, make sure you only drink this on this day and then not on this. Make sure that when you worship, you worship when we all worship, and you worship the way that we all worship and the place that we all worship. And Paul says, oh, that would kill me. Because we know what all of these things speak, spoke so passionately about. And he's already come. He's already done his job. And he is now with the Father, praying for us. These were a shadow of the things to come. A depiction, a preparation, a readying of heart that led us to the coming of Jesus, which we now know and see. Why on earth would you allow things that are past that are a fractional expression of be the means by which you are called or judged. It's foolishness. If Jesus did those things, let no one, let no one impose this upon you. Many of you, especially the women, know what postpartum depression is. Anybody ever heard of it? Very good. The thing is, is it doesn't get talked about much. But it's a pretty awful thing. I have to admit, prior to having kids, I knew nothing about it. But once I read about it, you know those little pamphlets the doctors give you that are supposed to be the answers to everything? They just scare you. When I read that, I freaked out, thinking my wife is going, oh, she's coming apart. Like, I know her. And that baby comes out, it's all over. But the thing about postpartum depression, which seems so vile and wrong to me, is that for nine months... A mother is excited about that which is coming. She feels kicks. She hears a heartbeat. She sees this baby develop on a screen. Her belly gets big. <laughs> Unwanted weight brings news of a coming. Stretch marks a curse. But your body begins to tell you constantly that something is coming. And Paul's saying, essentially, this is what all of these things were for. They're your stretch marks. They're your weight gain. They're your swollen ankles. They're your, they're your kicks at night. They're telling you that he's coming. And postpartum depression robs you that that thing you waited for, that beautiful, glorious boy or girl screaming and crying and crapping everywhere and <laughs> peeing on everything, waking you up relentlessly on the clock, that joyous little beautiful creation is the thing that you waited for. How crazy that you would long to be back in the nights of suffering looking forward to something. And postpartum depression begins to tell the mother that it was better back then. But what about that feeling I had? I don't feel that feeling anymore. I don't, I don't have any of the internalized emotional connection that I had, and it robs you of the joy which is here screaming its head off before you. And Paul says, don't let anyone tell you that you need to go back nine months prior. He's come. The joy of your soul is here. He's come. These verses teach, these verses teach us that believers are free. Something great has happened in Jesus. Christianity is not about being bound to do's and don'ts, disciplines and rigidity. It's just not. That's just preparing us to see the joy of our soul. And he's here. He's come. Church this morning. He's alive. He's calling. I want to tension this really quick though. The practice of our liberties our freedoms which are present. They are, however, subject in three ways. First and always to God. I do not want anyone walking out this morning going, oh, that was awesome. Pastor Jordan says I can just go have 
sex willy-nilly now. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that there is no moral restrictions within the course of worship and, de- and devote, devotion. I'm not saying that. There is. You are first devoted in your freedoms to God. It is your responsibility to know that which he loves and that which he hates. And then in love, in worship, devote yourself to such practice. Not because it makes you a Christian, but because you would want nothing more than to love on he who saved you. Second, you're responsible to the others. You're responsible to other believers in Christ. If your freedoms become a stumbling block, as it were, if your freedoms become an opportunity to cause a shadowed shroud of doubt upon Jesus on other people, give it up. It's not worth it to have it. The scripture is not telling you that a lack of legalism means you're free to impose your freedom on other people in the same manner. And lastly, I know there was a third one. It was there this morning. I'll skip it for right now. I'm sure it'll come back to me. But nonetheless, make sure that you understand that you are free. And the best expression of your freedom is a willing life to lay it down for others and for the glory of God. Number two. Actually, I lied. Let me read this text. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now about food that is sacrificed to idols, we know that we possess all knowledge. It's a nice way of saying sarcastically, yeah, we know. We know that it's not a big deal. We know that there's a whole list of things that often Christians make a big deal about that are not really a big deal. We know. We get it. But knowledge puffs you up. While love builds. You can know all you want to know. Who cares? What's indicative of a believer who loves Jesus is a love of sacrifice for others. Laying freedom down is the most free you will ever be. Ever be. That's modeled by Jesus first. And he ends it this way. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. That's just true. I can't beat that up. Number two, disqualification. The first was judgment. The second second is disqualification. And it's on the basis of insufficient spiritual evidence. Picking up in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost, God, this kills me. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. See, the heretics were teaching believers that there's a higher spiritual plane. There's a better type of worship. There's a more profound spirituality that you haven't tapped into yet. And I hate to break it to you, but this is not uncommon today. We dig deep for the superfluous, incredible, deep spiritual experiences. Ones by which maybe we're visited by angels. Or we speak with heavenly messengers. Or we're given spiritual gifts that exceed maybe that what we would think of others. Or we're given visions and dreams. And I'm not saying that any of these things as gifts are bad. But I'm saying the moment, church, when we look at others and say, oh, you're not there yet? You're not having those? God's not speaking to you? I mean, how much are you praying? Like, are you in your prayer closet on your face, sweating it out with Jesus? Because a real Christian, one who really loves God, one who really is full of the Spirit, one who really knows. Oh, he sees things. He hears. He's changed. He's been to the heavens. He says, don't allow anyone to disqualify you. According to these terms, the term for disqualification is really great and horrible at the same time. It means don't allow someone to act as an umpire over your life. Everybody knows baseball. We're in the Bay Area. We're supposed to love the Giants. It's okay if you don't. I don't. But 
We understand what an umpire does. He has ultimate authority over whether or not you're in or you're out. Whether or not you get to play the game or not. Whether you're seated on a bench or you're actively involved. He gets to make the decision. No one has supreme power over him. He's like, do not let anyone evaluate your spirituality based on experience, depth of prayer life, visions, dreams, giftedness. Do not allow anyone to say, oh, you're in and you're not. Do not allow that to be imposed upon you. They were departing from the teachings of Christ and as a result, departing from him. This young group of believers in Christ who loved him so passionately, who sought after him so fervently, were now teetering on the edge of despair because all they could see is that those who seemed to know more and be more learned than them were telling them, oh, unless you have this happening, you don't really know him. And he's causing us to be disconnected from the head. Disconnected from Christ. Our life, our joy, the reason by which we worship, the purpose by which we fill these seats, by which we pray, by which we serve our neighbor, being disconnected, pulled apart. Do not allow anybody to impose that upon you. Galatians 3, 1 through 3 says it this way. You foolish Galatians, big exclamation point, I can't scream. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I made it plain to you. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or disciplines or rigidity or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Do you have to have control over this? You didn't have control of it in the beginning. God so loved you, they came after you. The best description of the Lord in all of the Bible is him as a jealous lover. A jealous lover. One who hunts after you. Who eagerly seeks. Who amidst all of your offense over and over and over again as his heart breaks and breaks and breaks. He comes for you and he comes for you and he comes for you. You started this way. He did it all. That's how you came to know Jesus. Clearly, I portrayed him on the cross so that you could get it. You started with faith in him alone for everything according to his power alone. Why now? Is it based on what you gain? We need to check our spirituality. Yes, we ought to be disciplined to pray but not because it makes us believers. We pray because we love him. We pray because we want to know him. We pray because his will is the desire of our hearts. We pray because we don't know how to do everything right. We pray because we don't want to impose legalism and laws. We don't know what's in the best interest of everyone, nor ourselves. And so that's why we pray. That's why we seek God's presence and his power. Not to validate ourselves as Christians. No, that was done way out of our control. And thanks be to God for it. Number three, you guys. And this switches from legalism that is imposed upon you to your own decision and choice to apply it. See, I titled this sermon That Which Kills because I believe legalism functions in a circle. At some point in your life, whether it was by mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, often aunties and uncles, pastors, friends, teachers, someone told you that this is what Christians do. And this is what Christians don't do. It's learned. And so the circle begins at the point of it being imposed upon you. However, at some point you make a decision to fall a victim to it. And lastly, number three, when you apply legalism, you connect a part of the circle which ultimately connects the final part, which is at some point you will impose it on someone else. See, once you apply legalism to yourself, you begin to put into practice a belief system that says the gospel is not enough by itself. It requires 
And out of love and the best intentions, you'll teach that to others. So our last warning from Paul and the Spirit of God is about legalism being applied. So number three is self-denial, which leads to self-delusion. Self-denial, which leads to self-delusion. Picking up in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. See, the Colossian church, I would venture to say, as well as you and I, we are a victim to being tempted to live under a practice of what's called ascetism. It's just another way of saying discipline abstinence. And we know this because verse 23 tells us that these false teachers were promoting a self-made religion of disciplined ascetism and severity to the body. It's the practice of denying yourself things that are good and pleasing. Could be food, could be wine, could be juice, could be water. Could be a myriad of things, but it's the denial of things to the body in order to gain access to a deeper spiritual life, that which ultimately is more important than your body and brings you favor with God. It's a lie. It's a way of enslaving ourselves all over again. Let me share with you a story that I really struggle with even speaking on this morning. It's the most disgusting thing I think I've read in a long time. There was a man in the late 1700s named Willie Lynch. He was an English slave owner. And he was apparently really good at what he did. And so he was called in by a group of Virginian slave owners to teach them how to make a good slave. He gave a speech that was later dubbed How to Make a Slave. It's disgusting. And in this speech, there's a phrase that sticks out where he says, the best way to keep a slave is to teach them I lost it. Essentially, the best way to keep a slave is to teach them to feel like they can never be free. Never be free. Strip a dream from them. His phrasing was this. Keep the body, but take the mind. See, what the Virginians were afraid of was that the African slaves were multiplying, essentially. And because they worked so hard, they were getting pretty big. And they were concerned that at some point they were going to lose control. But for whatever reason, Willie Lynch didn't have this problem. He had slave upon slave upon slave. They were the best slaves known in the world. And he kept them under control. And he said, here's how you do it. It doesn't matter how strong they get. It doesn't matter how, how numerous they are. If you rob their minds of the ability to comprehend freedom, they'll stay with you forever. And that's exactly what happened. Willie Lynch taught them horrific ways of training the mind. The term lynching, the practice of lynching, that was his brainchild. He said, not only are you going to hang them, but you're going to hang men, women, and children, and you're going to hang them in front of everyone. Letting them know that the only way out of here is to die. And so you know what happened? When emancipation took place, and freedom was proclaimed, and slaves were to, to be released, Virginia and many other southern states retained their slaves quite well. In fact, the slaves just didn't leave. And there was an interview taken once where a slave said it this way, and I apologize for that term. They said it this way. Yeah, we know we're free, but we don't know what freedom is. And there's no way we could leave our master. There is no way. And this is what legalism does. This is what Paul's warning the church of. Don't impose it 
And don't practice it because it draws you away from the freedom that is perfectly known in Jesus to a new enslavement. It draws you backwards to that which held you captive. And it teaches you that you can never get out of the cycle. That you will always be subject to it. What does this do for us? What does this practice do for us? It does nothing. It does absolutely nothing. Verse 23. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining indulgence. Essentially, robbing yourself of food, fasting in an unbelievable fashion for the purpose of gaining any type of spiritual discipline or heightened revelation or relationship with God, denying yourself certain pleasures for the purpose similar. It looks great. When you get real skinny, you could tell all your friends, 45-day fast, done. It looks wise. Gives you the impression. But it does nothing in restricting the flesh of its sinful desire. Meaning this, you don't win anything. You're no more free than you were before. In fact, you're worse. It does nothing for you. So here's how I would conclude this thing. Because I know it's heavy. I prayed so hard this morning when my voice was gone. Because, to be honest, I'm so guilty of this. I do this to myself all the time. I do it to my child. I do it to my wife. I do it to the church. We're prone to do foolish things. And it stirs from an unbelief in Jesus. Unbelief draws us to fear. And fear, like any fear, causes some kind of reaction. And that reaction is almost always caustic to the body. First to ourselves, and then in reproduction to others. There's no more capable killing of the believer and the heart of the gospel and the community of Christians than legalism. So here's how I want to bookend this sermon. Paul began this sermon with calling believers to remember that which Jesus had done. Called them to remember that Christ died on the cross, buried in the earth, three days later, rose from the grave, ascended to the right of the Father, unshackled us, took away the power from the enemy and from death. Therefore, and I want to end calling us to remember. Could somebody do me a favor and hand me a pew Bible real quick? Thanks. Causing us to remember. And this is all I want you to remember. We finish off chapter two and this is how Paul starts chapter three. Let this weigh on you. Verse one. Since then, speaking to believers, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. This terminology means one thing. It means protected. It's guarded. No one can steal it from you. It cannot be killed, it cannot be destroyed, it cannot be ruined, it cannot be ripped out of the palm of his mighty right hand. It is hidden in him. For inasmuch as no one sees him now, likewise, no one can take that which he has secured. And he ends it with this. This is the good news. This is all the hope of your Christianity. This is all the hope of your life as a believer. It's in nothing that you do. It's in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. That which is hidden now, that which we fearfully struggle with keeping and retaining and having, that which we are concerned about when it comes to God's accepting and our disciplines, it's already hidden. And the grand surprise 
is that the imminent return of Jesus, that which will happen as we see him and glorified, knowing most assuredly that he's alive, therefore for the first time, we will see a perfect, glorified, fully saved you and I. Let's remember this morning. I want to invite the deacons down as we prepare to take communion. This table represents something far more beautiful than we often relate. To some, this gets passed around as a quick halftime snack. So I want to strongly urge you this morning to do something that might be abnormal for you. If you've never taken communion before, because maybe you just are trying to figure this whole thing out, you're sitting here in a church service trying to weigh out who this Jesus guy is. My encouragement to you is to not take it unless you are first willing to say, I don't know what it is. I don't know why. But I'm compelled to believe that God loved me, still loves me. He knows everything that I've done and everything that I'm doing, and yet he's giving himself for me. I want you all to dig deep, even the believers this morning, before you put bread to tongue or juice to mouth. Wrestle with one thing. Have I stopped believing that the gospel of Jesus is capable, is powerful, and will faithfully do and accomplish all it was ever promised to? Do I believe it? Do I believe it for my kids? Do I believe it for my city? Do I believe it for my neighbors? And do I believe it for myself? Because this is the means by which we receive a spot at this table. A simple ascending belief that Christ is, was, and will continue to do all that he promised. Jesus is alive. And he calls all of us to the table this morning to engage in a practice of remembering and to receive what is a continual covenant between God and man. Jesus gave very pointed, very glorious words when he says to his friends around the table as he breaks bread and as he pours a cup. He says, this is my body which is about to be ripped apart for you. In that cup, he pours wine and he says, this is my blood that is about to be poured out for you. And then he says this great thing. He says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So when we gather at the table, we don't just remember what Jesus did when his body was broken and his blood was poured out but we remember and rejoice that we are awaiting a hope in revelation. We're awaiting for God to be revealed and for us to be revealed with him. He says, I am making you a promise that you and I are going to drink this together again. It's as good as done. You and I will share again. And I'm waiting until I will finish everything. And as you see me as your life, there you will be glorified too. I wonder if you wouldn't pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for your son. We don't deserve him. And that's what makes this so incredible is we never will. But you chose to love us. You chose to love us in spite of everything. And you said the true love is known most incredibly when a friend lays down his life for another friend. This is what we have this morning. Father, this is not a cracker and this is not juice. This is an opportunity for us to meet you. It's an opportunity for dead to be brought to life. It's an opportunity for us to repent. It's an opportunity for us to draw near. Receive us in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you get this, at these elements, hold on to them and we'll take them together.
Again, as I said earlier, Jesus said among his friends, which is who we are in Christ, we're not generation after generation, far removed. We are friends seated at the table with the Lord. He took the loaf of bread and he tore it. Again, he said, this is our body. This is my body. It's broken for you. The body of Jesus taken to you. Likewise, he poured the cup. 
shared it again with his friends. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. A covenant. A promise. The point of which we received. He called us to share in it. To entrust him for it. He said that this was poured out for our sin. The blood of Jesus. Take and drink. Father, your faithfulness knows no ends. We are so grateful that you meet us here. Lord, I pray for two things. For you to draw us to yourself. Allow us to be your friends. And change us. We don't want to be the same. We love you. We love your gospel. It frees us and it will free the world. It is all we have to have hope in. It is all we have to entrust ourselves to. It is all that is required for salvation. We thank you for that. Because we would fail at every other effort. And you know it. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and your life and your discipline to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing one more song before we go this morning.
made it. Made it to the end. Uh, you know what, guys? There's just a couple things I want to say. Uh, if you're anything like me, and God's word never seems to let you down, um, don't be afraid to respond to him this morning, however that looks. If you're one of those people who maybe you don't know Jesus, and you want to know some more about him, or maybe you've got some things going on in your life, and you would like to have prayer, that's what we're here for. So I'd like to invite our prayer counselors up. They'll be over here at the left, my left, your right side of the room. And don't hesitate. Don't feel like you've got to run. No one's going home right away. For the rest of you, hint, hint, don't go home right away. If you're looking forward to the coming of Jesus, so much so that there's nothing more important and exciting than loving on your neighbor and allowing the world to see the freedom that you have in Christ, guess what? They're at our front door right outside. Spend some time with us here. We're outside. We've got a lot of fun stuff for your kid to, to be doing, enjoying themselves. Don't run off. Go meet some of your neighbors as they literally walk around our block by the front door. Love God. Absolutely love each other. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.